The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we are now about four weeks away from the China-Africa mega summit known as the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, FOCAC. Uh, it is going to be a very, very big deal. 50 African heads of state will be on their way to Beijing. All summer they have been preparing for it with various conferences and delegations have been coming here to China, military chiefs, journalists, think tank analysts such as yourself. There really is no bigger deal. And Kobus, you yourself have seen the kind of heightened activity over the past week. You've done no more than, what, 15, 20 interviews with the press? I guess my question for you, Kobus, is when you're being interviewed by all these journalists about FOCAC, about the China-Africa relationship, what are they talking to you about? What's the vibe, the meme, the theme that you're getting in these interviews? The interviews I did this this time around was mostly related both to the BRICS conference, which was happening in South Africa, and then also to the visit of of President Xi Jinping to South Africa. So it was this kind of double whammy, um, and everyone wanted to talk China-Africa. Um, so the biggest issue that came up was financing. Um, you know, like how much do we think China's going to give to Africa? You know, what are some of the complications around this financing? How good is this financing actually for Africa. And particularly this year, it, it also related very heavily to the issue of debt. There's a lot of anxiety and discussion about debt in Africa at the moment. So financing is the question on everybody's mind, and it will be the big headline that comes out of the FOCAC summit in September. Every time we have a FOCAC summit, the takeaway is always how much money is China going to make available to various African states? Um, I'm not sure, and we've talked about this in the past, whether that's a very healthy thing, uh, because it does create this this imbalance and it creates this sense of dependency as well, which has been one that we don't we wanted to try and get away from with the relationship between Africa and the West. And now it seems like we're falling back into that same trap again, where basically it feels like to me sometimes African leaders are going to Beijing with their you know, cap in hand and saying, how much money am I going to get and shake out of the Chinese? Now, it's not surprising that they're, they're doing that because getting access to capital for African states is not easy. And it's one of the reasons why the, that a lot of people are frustrated by the criticism coming out of the West, particularly the United States and the IMF, among others, about this debt trap diplomacy meme, these, these accusations that China's loading up African countries with debt. Because as we heard in the past week from Namibia's finance minister, the actual real amount of the Chinese debt is rather small compared to some of the amounts that they owe to European countries. That's something very important to remember. But also the terms of the Chinese debt are, are very interesting. And this is something that the Namibian finance minister brought out, that the payment terms are much longer. There are interest rates, uh, holidays that are much longer, and the interest rates themselves are much lower. Now, let's be clear here. These are not grants. These are, in fact, loans that must be paid 
back. So we're going to talk today about the loans and what they're going to be used for. And that's going to come down to infrastructure. And I can't tell you how excited I am about the guest we have on tonight for you on the program. Jude Moore is a visiting fellow at the Center for Global Development in Washington, D.C. But prior to his time in Washington, he served as Liberia's Minister of Public Works, and he was the country lead on the construction and maintenance infrastructure from December 14th to January 2018. Prior to that, he was also the Deputy Chief of Staff to the President from 2012 to 2014. So, Jude, thank you so much for joining us from South Africa. Uh, we just were so honored to have you on the program. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm a big fan of the program. So just having an opportunity to be on the show today is, is for me, is a full circle. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy to be here. And as some of the stuff you talked about, I too have, you know, had some frustrations with the way the relationship between China and Africa is cast. You know, now that I'm in Washington, a lot of that comes through in terms of the comments that are made, the papers that are written, and the way that the relationship is seen from that side. So I thought it was important as someone who worked with an African president on their staff and then later became the government minister responsible for infrastructure, just to be able to provide some context in terms of what this relationship actually looks like in practice. So it's great to be on the show. Great to join you and Cobus. Okay, well, let's let's get right down to it. And we're going to, you know, cut right to the chase here. You were there in the decision-making process of these loans and the infrastructure. This is a discussion that Cobus and I have had for years, whereas the West is putting out this meme that says that China is recklessly loading up African countries with debt, oftentimes with potentially ulterior motives. That is, that is the implication that, and they use the ports example in Sri Lanka as an example, that by loading up countries with debt, they can then, when they inevitably cannot be repaid, will extract concessions in the form of land or, or in strategic ports or other strategic infrastructure. What Cobus and I have said over the years is that the act of taking these loans for infrastructure is a very calculated, rational decision. Now, we've said that from the outside looking in, but I'd like to hear from you as somebody who advised an African president and who was involved in making those decisions about how to finance infrastructure development, what were some of the criteria that went into the negotiations and the thought process about whether or not to take on loans from China? The first thing to actually to appreciate first is the context in which this occurs, right? Uh, and just some general background. I, I don't know if you knew this, but 40% of all the paved roads on the African continent are found in one country. That's South Africa. It's incredible. Uh, across the developing world, the number of paved meters per 1,000 persons is like 1,000 meters. In OECD countries, it's, like, it's about 15,000 uh, meters of paved uh, roads. In sub-Saharan Africa, it's around 300. You take a country like uh, a big city like uh, Kinshasa, it's around 63 meters of paved roads per 1,000 persons. Against this backdrop of a massive infrastructure deficit, one with it's almost impossible to imagine how we could even build our economies without having infrastructure. This is the context in which we must make decisions in terms of what we're going to do, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is the total amount of money that's available through the multilateral development banks is pretty limited. So for a country like Liberia that came through the HIPIC program, Coming through the HIPIC program meant there were certain restrictions in terms of how much debt one could take, how much concession. Judy, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Do me a favor. What is the HIPIC program? 
So the, the HEPET program were uh, as a number of African low-income countries, because it wasn't just African countries, who had um, significant debt. The Paris Club, the, the group of wealthy countries to whom this debt was owed, and then some of the debt was owed to multilateral development banks, they had an agreement that to be able to relieve these highly indebted poor countries, there was the, the HIPIC. So these highly indebted poor countries would go through a program where there will be significant reforms in terms of the public financial management and how they would go forward, and some of that debt would be waived. So Liberia was a big beneficiary of the HIPAA initiative. We, $5 billion of our debt was waived. Uh, President Sirleaf, in her first term, that was one of her largest, um, one of her greatest achievements. So once these countries were brought out of that and debts were waived, then the, the countries waiving the debt, it was in their interest to ensure that these things didn't happen again. So again, one has to understand that this criticism of China as loading up African countries with debt comes from that, that these countries are now recklessly you know, taking debt again. And before we know it, we're going to create the same conditions that necessitated the HIPAA uh, arrangement. One of the things I want to say about that, though, uh, Kobus, is when China is presented as if it is this big bad actor who is acting in bad faith and loading countries with debt, it almost takes away the agency of the countries. It takes away, it's almost as if African countries are naive or they don't understand what is happening to them and China is basically pulling wool over their eyes. This is, it almost infantilizes Africans and African leaders. And that's not the way to be able to look at the conditions that prompt us to go. Because of the limited amount of money that's coming out of international finance, uh, financial institutions, countries like Liberia have to look elsewhere. And currently, it's not as if there's a whole lot of options in terms of where they can look. One of the few countries that's actually available to talk to countries like Liberia that may not have the best credit record, having just had $5 billion of their debt waived, was China. And China didn't just come to the conversation and change it in terms of how we dealt with the West. China brought significant resources to the table, right? So for a country like Liberia, you couldn't possibly depend only on the World Bank or African Development Bank to be able to finance the infrastructure. That would not have happened. So going to the Chinese, one was because the Chinese offered options that were many times equally as favorable or sometimes even more favorable than the ones we got from our Western partners. Two, the Chinese processes were, to be honest, sometimes much simpler. Okay, um, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, can you give us a, a breakdown of, of roughly the amount of debt that Liberia roughly has at the moment to China and to traditional Western and also multilateral lenders? The incredible thing is, uh, I think our, our total debt now is close to a billion dollars. Most of that debt is about... To be honest, I, I don't think Liberia. Most of what Liberia, and this is this was probably be, this would be unusual. Most of what Liberia got from China was grants. Um, so we, the Chinese built most of that debt is owed to um, multilateral development agencies and, and um, the traditional lend, uh, lenders, um, the European Investment Bank, World Bank, African Development Bank. Some of it is owed to newer actors like the Arab lenders, the Saudi fund, Kuwait fund, um, Badea. 
Yes. So we, we don't. That, we, that makes sense in some ways, though, that because Liberia is unlike, say, Angola, for example, which doesn't right. have a lot in the way of natural resources and a lot of the twenty five billion dollars of Angola's debt to China is tied to oil. Liberia, uh, for better or for worse, doesn't have those resources. Uh, so in some ways, the, the, the fact that it's awarded grants does make sense there. But let me have you step out a little bit from your Liberia sure, kind of sure. frame of mind and kind of look at the continent as a well. whole. Particularly, we're talking about countries like Djibouti and That's Kenya, right. which That's are right. often in the headlines right now. For, and critics for. will say that there's so much debt that is now impossible, given the current economics of these countries, to repay them. 92%, according to the Center for Global Development, where you are, 92% of Djibouti's debt is now held by the Chinese. 72% uh, of uh, Kenya's bilateral debt, debt is now held by the Chinese. Mm. And, and people are worried that that now is at unsustainable levels. So what you have talked about is, sure, the West can complain, but at the end of the day, African leaders like President Kenyatta in Kenya do not have a lot of choices if they want to jumpstart their economies with infrastructure that is absolutely essential. But at the same time, if they load up too much debt, they won't be able to pay it back and they'll be crushed by the interest payments. Give us a little bit of your perspective for a non-Liberian perspective on right. say countries like Djibouti and Kenya. Eric and, and Kobus, I, I, I think I, I don't want to create the impression that debt distress is not an issue. It is. Obviously, uh, countries have to be able to repay the debt that they take. It's just uh, countries have to be in a, a, to be able to repay the debt. The economies have to be in a place where they're actually generating revenue and without infrastructure. So it's almost like the chicken and the egg thing. You know, I, I always like to give the example with the U.S., which is, you know, the, the largest and most profitable for now economy in the world, that about 73 percent of all products that are made in the United States are transported on roads. 73 percent. Without the interstate system, the U.S. economy would not hold. And in most of these countries like Kenya, Djibouti, across the continent, sometimes it's only 10 to 12 percent of the network that is paved. Now, so in the case of Kenya, I think that the, the question we can ask ourselves, because in the case of Kenya, there have been questions about the price that was paid. It's not just the accumulation of debt, but in one instance where the cost of the rail was $4 billion, when across the, the border in Tanzania, they were able to get it for one point something or at least half of what Kenya paid. That, that I think, is a, is a point worth making, is a point worth taking into account. However, here's, my, here's what I would say about this, um, Eric. Everybody brings up the port in Sri Lanka, but China has given out billions of dollars in debt. And in my view, that the port in Sri Lanka is the only example that people can give it shows that this may not, you know, be the Sri Lanka example cannot, that one instance cannot become the end all be all of how China engages its partners. In the case of Djibouti and, and Kenya, I think it's important that people recognize one, that the countries, the, the people taking the debt, well, in the case of Kenya, were democratically elected. Right, They're most African countries now, even the autocratic African countries, even the, the 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 ones that are run by dictators, run sham campaigns, 
and elections and during those elections they make promises to their people they have to make the uh, keep those promises and so every single country across the continent wants to deliver something for their people and that's what kenya has tried to do now sometimes they took this debt when commodity prices were high when the economies were booming on the calculation that when those debt when those infrastructures were built the infrastructure will be able to be leveraged so that the economy will grow and things happen most of the african countries eric depend on commodity prices that will go up and down in terms of prices and so sometimes the debt becomes onerous and in that situation just as they would have done with any other creditor the debt can be renegotiated the terms can be rescheduled i believe that most african countries without the chinese debt without chinese financing are looking into an abyss they're looking into a situation in which their economies as they are cannot generate the wealth that it would take to be able to transform the, li the lives of their people they're not going to be able to get that amount of resources from the west i'd like to give you an example that in 2015 the largest chinese export credit agencies i think is the exim bank and the china development bank they did more business in 2015 than the U.S. Exim Bank had done in 80 years in terms of dollar value. Hmm. That's the that's the that's the amount of resources. That is stunning. It is, it I mean, is, that is, is absolutely it is, stunning. It is incredible in terms of the amount of resources that the Chinese are bringing to bear. So in instances where those loans are, are because the economies do not work or do not click enough to be able to repay the loans. The Kenyan government, the Djibouti government, the government of Liberia, the government of the Democratic Republic of Congo, whoever's taking these loans from the Chinese will sit with the Chinese lenders and renegotiate. In the meantime, though, what is the option? What are they supposed to do? One of the things, and this is a question that has never been answered, Kobus. It's never been answered, Eric. If you ask them, okay, the, the Kenyans, the Tanzanians, the Ghanaians, they're not going to ask the Chinese. They're not going to take loans from the Chinese. How else? Or are they going to finance their infrastructure? How else are they going to grow their economies? And so th this is this yeah, is my this a, is a very very important question. Um, one of one of the other questions that I wanted to to touch on is um, you know one one of the things that's frequently said about the about Chinese loans is that the lending process itself is relatively streamlined and relatively efficient um, compared to to um, you know particularly kind of dealing with Bretton Woods institutions like the World Bank. Um, I wonder if you could talk us through what the different processes are in terms of is you know you're a government you want to apply for a loan you apply for a loan to, with the chinese and you apply for a loan with traditional western lenders how does the process then go on from there and how are they different so great this is it's actually this is actually a great question because i've, I've had experience with this in terms of project preparation with the Chinese and project preparation with the World Bank, African Development Bank, and the European Investment Bank. I think to ensure uh, the World Bank, African Development Bank, and European Investment Bank have to answer to shareholders, and they have created, they've become very, very risk averse. They have become very, very conservative. And so they have built multiple layers of compliance in everything. And at any point in those multiple layers, the project can get held up because it's not compliant with something. It takes a very, very long time to negotiate all of those compliance points. Now, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. It must come, those compliance points come out of bad experiences. However, with the Chinese, 
We do a feasibility study that is professional and technically done. Based on the feasibility study, we agree on what the price is going to be, what the extent of the loan is going to be. The Minister of Finance flies to um, China with his team, sit with the Exim Bank team. The loan is approved. <laughs> I, I'm, I really do not mean to sound flippant about this. Compared to, and I'm I'm not making a judgment here. I'm not making a value statement to say that one is better than the other. I'm just saying from my experience, we we finance. We were fi- we're trying to finance the reconstruction of the runway at Roberts International Airport. And on the one hand was the European Investment Bank, and on the one hand was the Arab lenders. The European Investment Bank was, of course, more stringent in terms of compliance. In the meantime, while we were dealing with them, we were also dealing with the Chinese in terms of financing the new terminal at Roberts International Airport. And I'll be very honest to say that we finalized our agreement with the Chinese. President Shirley flew to uh, Beijing. She was on a state visit there. It was finalized and signed. And by the next dry season, the construction of the terminal was underway. In the construction of the runway took us at the very least at a 28 or 32 months for the project to begin. And um, both of them will be finished about the same time. It is incredible. <laughs> it's, it's incredible in terms I of mean, how speed and cost are what the Chinese differentiate themselves. I mean, and, and <laughs> I'm reading a book now on Huawei and the key kind of drivers for Huawei's KPIs are speed and cost. And you can see how that even carries out into the foreign policy and into the, the development side of things. Let's talk about the one of the most contentious, sensitive political issues tied to infrastructure lending with the Chinese. And it's the thing that gets everybody just infuriated in Africa. And that's the question of labor. So these infrastructure projects that the Chinese agreed to. So President Sirleaf goes to Beijing. She signs the deal. The finance minister closes it. They come back. The money starts flowing in. And and what? how does it work with the labor? Because people are just furious when they see Chinese workers. And there's this whole thing about China importing prisoners, which, of course, has never been confirmed, that the Chinese are displacing locals. And the labor really gets in, gets just under people in countries where you have 50, 60 percent unemployment rates that they have Chinese workers. How come Chinese workers are involved in these projects and they don't hire exclusively from locals? I believe this is a very legitimate problem because one of the problems we have on the continent of Africa right now is just massive, I mean, record levels of unemployment. And so most of these infrastructure projects are meant to be job creating. It's not just building the infrastructure, it's also creating jobs in the construction of the infrastructure. And I have seen examples of uh, projects that are financed by the, well, where everybody on the project is Chinese in a country that is predominantly African. Even casual laborers are Chinese, but this wasn't in Liberia. This was in uh, uh, Equatorial Guinea. I accompanied the president to Equatorial Guinea twice, and one of the Equatorial Guinea hosted the African Union Summit, and they were trying, they were basically trying to create a new city overnight. <laughs> That's how quickly it was called Sipopo. And um, most of what was happening there, the construction, there were a lot of Chinese, even for casual labor, but it wasn't just there. There were government projects in other places in Equatorial Guinea where the number of Chinese on the projects was just really, really high. However, again, I do not want to make this about Liberia, yeah, because that has not been our experience in Liberia. 
And I think when it, it depends on how this is negotiated, because up front, the Liberian negotiators made this clear to their Chinese counterparts that unemployment is a huge issue in Liberia, and for all on, first all unskilled positions had to be filled by like, by locals, and there had to be a significant and appreciable number of the skilled positions if we could find the skilled people in Liberia filled by that. And so, on projects that we've had with the Chinese, upward of 75 percent of the workers there have been Liberian. And I think it, I, in, in countries where it's happened, where most of the, the, the laborers happen to be Chinese, it is not simply a reflection of China's you know, strong arm in them. I think it's also a reflection of the negotiating capacity of the government representatives who, did, who negotiate the terms of those projects with the Chinese. Because in my experience, even on projects that were totally financed in terms of grant financing from the Chinese, more than 60% of the laborers on the side were locals. I'm talking about they built a big, I think it was 10 or $11 million hospital in the middle of the country. They're building a ministerial complex that will host at least seven government ministries and agencies. They built um, the University of Liberia campus at Fender. And in all of those instances, more than 50%, sometimes up to 60, 65% of the laborers on the site were Chinese. But almost all of the casual workers, not Chinese, local, almost all of the casual workers were. So I think there are, like I said, I, I've observed this in Equatorial Guinea, and I'm pretty confident that the Equatorial Guinea was not unique or alone. There are places on the continent where there's a significant number of Chinese labor, but I don't believe, I, I believe it's also a, a reflection of the negotiating position or the perception of the negotiating position on the part of the African government that negotiated with the Chinese. You, you mentioned the negotiating position of, of the African governments. It's, it's become a kind of truism in, in China-Africa relations that Africa should work harder to have a, a collective position in relation to China and to try and improve collective bargaining um, with China. Do, do you think that is possible and what, what, what is holding it back? That's a very interesting point, Kobus. But just I think that the way to look look at West Africa, uh, the Equus region. So first, a lot of the countries are very small: Sierra Leone, Liberia, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, um, uh, even Equatorial Guinea. They're they're really really small. So there is no scale. So the, most of the projects they take to the Chinese are individual country projects. And so one of the ways that Africa can actually increase its bargaining position if we start to submit regional projects, right? So if, if we're going to do a road project, then the road extends and goes through Liberia and goes through Sierra Leone. The African Development Bank has started to encourage uh, the countries, the, the, the neighbors to actually submit. They get more money if they submit a regional plan. So because of how small the countries are and because the, the, most of the projects they submit are individual, it's difficult for them to be able to accept, um, uh, to, to, to bargain collectively. However, when it comes to African foreign policy toward China, on almost every position, there's a common African position. And so I believe, like you're suggesting, that there is room for Africans to be able to have common positions in terms of like a template like that can be adjusted to country, but common positions in terms of how they negotiate with uh, with the Chinese. I think it is possible, but I think it, it would be more beneficial 
to the Africans if they begin to submit um, uh, regional projects instead of uh, uh, single projects. Last question for you today. Um, we are now, again, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, about a month away from the FOCAC summit. Uh, I presume that uh, Liberian President George Weah is going to be going. Uh, 50 out of 54 leaders will be going. So I assume there's no reason why he wouldn't be going. I haven't seen the master list of who's going and who's not. But let's assume that he's going and pretend that you're back in government advising President Wei. Now, Liberia is in a tough spot here because it's a small country. It's a poor country. It doesn't have natural resources. It isn't strategically located like Djibouti is. It's not on the Belt and Road like Kenya is or, or Egypt. It doesn't have the population or the market that Nigeria has, and it doesn't have the oil that Angola has or the infrastructure and the logistics that, uh, that South Africa have. So it's in a tough spot there. And how does a small country like Liberia, when it's sitting at a table filled with the big guys who have more pressing interests that appeal to the Chinese, how do they present their case to the Chinese at a summit like, uh, like what's going to happen in Beijing? And what would you advise the president in terms of how he should present himself and Liberia's case to the Chinese. Yeah, that's that's tough. I mean, you we uh, before the crash in the ore prices because Liberia has iron ore, and there were significant Chinese interests in Liberia's ore, but with what's happening with steel, um, that 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 interest has waned. But China now, I just read yesterday that China now is consuming so much meat that the industry's impact in terms of global warming is about to become even more significant. China is also a massive consumer of grains. And if there's anything that countries like Liberia and Sierra Leone and Guinea have is significant holdings in terms of land. And before there has been Chinese interest in large scale agriculture, right? So each country will have to lead with its strength. And most of the people leading this investment or interest in terms of large-scale agriculture were not actually state-owned companies, but private Chinese companies, I mean, or quasi-private Chinese companies that were interested in it. And so one of the things um, that the government of Liberia can actually advance is, you know, how working with China, using Chinese expertise to be able to improve the yields and, and what we can do with agriculture. The second thing also is that the prices of, of commodities wane and the, the ebb and flow. And so um, we can't go to the negotiating table without coming with what we actually have, which is our ore. So my, my advice to the president would be that China is still interested, you know, in securing um, strategic minerals. There are Chinese companies that are still interested in what we have, maybe not as much at the, at the moment, but to be able to do that, to invite Chinese companies in terms of collaboration with the Liberian government and Liberian private sector to be able to um, improve uh, agricultural use, but provide land for large-scale commercial agriculture. I think a country like Liberia, th that's what you bring to the table. But I think for small countries, small, fragile states, I believe that if they, like that Cobas suggested, if Liberia doesn't simply come to the conversation as Liberia, if Liberia comes to the conversation along with Sierra Leone, or Liberia comes to Sierra Leone and Guinea, because we have this Mano River Union, and say, this is our position, this is what we would like to engage China on, and this is something that would benefit us as a region. So what they lack in individual size, 
they might be able to gain in terms of coming together in terms of presenting themselves as a single front. So there might be something that's specific to Liberia, but they ask together, they approach the Chinese together about it. And so now you're not just talking about 4 million people in Liberia, you're talking about it's almost 6 million in Sierra Leone. And so there's some sort of scale because now that they are coming together and they're asking for something as a region, as opposed to coming and asking as individuals. But I should say, you know, um, that going forward, I don't think it's either or with the West and China. It's both and. Africa needs friends. For Africa to become exclusively dependent on the Chinese would be a, simply a replication of the of the situation that we're trying to get away from now, where Africa was completely exclusively dependent on the West. Africa needs as many partners as it can get. And China has been a significant positive force in the development of Africa over the last 20 years. And so this thing about, is it a new colonization? I think it, it, it actually sells the relationship short and it taints what is, in many instances, a very positive relationship between the Chinese and African governments. Well, let's leave it there on a positive note. Uh, Judy Moore is a visiting fellow at the Center for Global Development in Washington, D.C., but previously he was the man in the seat with the president, with Sir Leif Johnson in Monrovia, in Liberia, who was the minister of public works who negotiated with the Chinese. And it's really the first time on our program, Cobus, in eight years that we've had you know, somebody who's actually there to tell us what it's like on the inside. So, uh, Judy, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. I know you're on Twitter, and if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, uh, what's what's the best way? What's your Twitter handle? It's at Judy underscore Moore, and Judy is G-Y-U-D-E. Cobus uh, and Eric, thank you for having me on the program. Like I said at the beginning, I'm a big fan. This is me. I'm all pumped and very excited. Like, hey, I was on the podcast, even though I used to listen to it before. So it's a full circle for me. Thank you. Well, we are we are equally pumped and excited, and we hope that uh, President uh, Wei is listening as well and to your sage advice so to, from you. Thanks so much for joining us. We all appreciate right. it. Thank you. Kobus, my head is spinning right now trying to absorb all that we heard because, again, this is the first time that you and I have actually spoke to an actual minister who was in the room with the Chinese and the president and negotiating these deals. And I'm just trying to think about what were the most salient points that he that he raised, that Judy was talking about the fact that, and I think this is so important, when people talk about the debt issue, they pretend that that Africa has more choices than they actually have. And I think it's interesting how he said it infantilizes the Africans in terms of that they don't know what they're doing. And you and I have talked about this a lot, that stripping Africans of agency is the same type of paternalism and even a, uh, this just this... Yeah, it's paternalism, that Africa, that relationship that Africa's had with the West for so long. We have to empower people to make rational, strategic decisions for themselves. And they come to this, you know, as equals with the Chinese, and they don't have to take the Chinese debt. No one is forcing Kenyatta to take that money. And he's accountable to his people. It's a democracy in Kenya. So if it doesn't work out, he's finished. So I think at that point, we have to give agency to Kenyatta and other African leaders and, and I think what Jude said was, was right on the money. And it, it's very validating for me to hear him as well kind of talk about these things because these are the things that you and I have just kind of picked up. But to hear it directly from a first source, first person source is, uh, is really exciting.
Yes. Um, I was like, yes. You know, kind of when he was saying that, I was very, very enthusiastic about it. Um, I, I think it's, it's also in, in this discussion, it's really important for, for the West to be, to Western institutions and governments to be, to be more explicit and more honest about what, what the situation actually looks like. But of course, they're not speaking to Africa. They're speaking to, to domestic constituencies, you know. So, so then they have a lot riding on making themselves look as virtuous as possible. And while the real the real situation is a lot more complicated, I don't think the West is always in such a kind of, you know, beneficent position as it as it puts itself as it makes itself out to be. Yeah, I mean and and I think there are other issues going on here with uh with some of the anti-Chinese rhetoric towards uh the debt issue in particular because if you know, Jude pointed out that you know, the the port in uh in in uh, Sri Lanka is really the only example that people come to. Uh, and I think that considering the scale of Chinese loans around the world, um, that is an interesting point to take into account. I had not thought of it that way. And what we've seen in Venezuela is that the Venezuelans have defaulted on a big part of their debt with the Chinese. They're not going to pay it back. We all know that. Um, we've talked to people who are experts like Matt Furchin from the Carnegie Chinhua Center who say the Chinese are, you know, they're learning from that experience. They rewrote part of the Zimbabwe debt. And, and again, I'm not saying this to defend the Chinese. I'm saying that we should look at the evidence and then make our decisions. So the port in Sri Lanka is one case. The rewriting of the Zimbabwe debt is another. The very passive approach that they take into debt in Venezuela is another example. And I think this all has to be done in the context of the hundreds of billions of dollars of Chinese debt that's put out there and to see what have they actually done rather than the very kind of, it is speculation as to what might happen that the West is putting out. And I, and I think, again, there's a lot of fear and anxiety about China that's mixed up in this debt trap diplomacy meme that goes out. There's, I think there's a lot of anxiety, particularly about the West's strategic position in the world, you know, and, and I think, you know, there, there is a, there's a lot of anxiety about around perceptions that the West is losing traction, um, you know, in, in, in parts that was its traditional, you know, sphere of, of influence, like, like in Africa, um, you know, and, and I mean, that raises a lot of questions about, about you know, whether, whether the West would have been okay with Africa just remaining undeveloped. You know, would that have been fine for you know for Washington and London to just live on for another fifty years of with with a perpetually underdeveloped Africa? I guess it probably would have been. You know, so so I mean, you know that it, it yeah, it's, it's it's a difficult question to answer. So that's what we think. That you heard what Jude thinks. Did he challenge some of your preconceptions about debt, loans, agency in Africa? Um, this is a conversation that really touches. A lot of very, very sensitive issues when it comes to labor, when it comes to indebtedness, and it comes to agency for African countries and leaders. And what is the relationship between African countries, particularly small countries like Liberia and big powers like the Chinese and the West? We'd love to hear from you. Uh, our email address is in the show notes. You will be able to find us on Twitter and on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And this is a conversation that we have throughout the year. Uh, we'd like to see what happens at FOCAC. 
what the big number will be. We will be talking with people like Judy again after FOCAC to get a response to see how people are reacting to the huge amounts of money that are expected to flow from Beijing to Africa, and a lot of it in the form of loans for infrastructure. So this conversation that we had today is absolutely timely in light of the big summit that's coming up. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus Fenstaden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the show. Thanks so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.